I need 60 minutes. 60 minutes to me! 60 minutes! No big you no mercy! Nothing but the bubble! You got me! We're gonna ring the bell! We're gonna ring that championship bell! Welcome to the Kravitsky and Kane podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bobby Kravitsky. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby underscore K91. He's Jeff Kane, and you can find him on Twitter at Jeff Kane 78. Jeff, how you doing tonight? Bobby, I'm feeling it, and I'm feeling real good, buddy. Amen to that, brother. It's time to throw the ball up and get this show underway. It's time for the opening tip. Jeff, the Stanley Cup Finals got underway last night. The NBA Finals are now set for Thursday night. In your opinion, which one is better? Any other year, Bobby. Any other year, I'm going to tell you it's the NHL playoffs. It's the Stanley Cup Finals because I just feel like hockey playoffs in general are more exciting, more energetic, just louder, and the crowds go crazy. But this year, I'm going to go with the NBA Finals. And the only reason I'm saying that is the matchup. You got a rematch of last year's final. You got King James versus Stephen Curry. You have a team that went 73-9 and this year and just had a seven-game masterful series against the uh, OKC Thunder. This year, I'm saying it's the NBA Finals. Any other year, I'm looking at it and I'm saying NHL Finals all day long. And let's face it, the NHL Finals, outside of Pittsburgh and San Jose, there's really not a lot of, you know, luster in this one. Really, you know, people in people in uh, Minnesota aren't really watching this one on bended knee. Jeff, all you have to do is look at the ratings from game one of the Stanley Cup. According to Sean, I hope I get this right, Gentile of Sporting News, game one of the Stanley Cup finals got a measly 2.8 overnight rating. CBS, for context, ran a rerun of the Scorpion. And you know what that registered? A 2.6. Almost tied it. Almost beat it. Meanwhile... Well, have you ever seen Scorpion? Scorpion's a great freaking show. I have dude. no idea what it's about. I've, I've seen the awesome. commercials. I, I have no idea. I've never seen an episode. I don't know a single character in that show. Walter just needs to, you know, get up and get after that chick. I can't think of her name. My wife loves that show. But yeah, no, as I said, Pittsburgh, San Jose, that's not very sexy. Yeah, meanwhile, Jeff, the NBA surpassed its highest ever overnight cable rating in Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals, which drew a whopping 11.2. The NHL will get the diehards, but the NBA is going to get everyone else. And you know why? Because fans know that this is when the NBA becomes must-watch television, when the heavyweights start to go head-to-head and the Stanley Cup simply doesn't have that same appeal. Well, I'll I'll agree with you for this year because there are some heavyweights, but nine times out of ten, if they're on simultaneously, I'm watching the NHL playoffs and I'm watching the Stanley Cup championship, you know, Stanley Cup finals, because I, I just feel like there's more drama than there is in the NBA finals. This year, I cannot wait for Thursday night. Really cannot wait for Thursday night. In fact, I didn't even have... I didn't even turn on game one of the Stanley Cup finals, which isn't normally what I do. I was glued to game seven last night. I watched the first hour of the Stanley Cup 
and then never flipped back to it. But here, here's the thing. Overall, the Stanley Cup playoffs, the NHL playoffs, is more entertaining than the NBA postseason on the whole. But when you get down to the conference finals and the championship, that is when that picture that of having a few super teams, which hurts the NBA in the earlier rounds, helps it in the later stages as we see Westbrook and Durant go head-to-head with Curry and Thompson. They do such a great job, as we talked about on this podcast last week, of marketing their superstars, which the NHL, to its detriment, does not. And so you have the household names that everyone is tuning in to see going head-to-head against each other. Finally, it's these, these great teams that have legitimate shots at the championship. Last season, for example, Cleveland, without Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, still managed to help produce a more compelling championship than the Stanley Cup Finals between Chicago and Tampa Bay. Well, see, now I didn't really watch much of last year's NBA Finals because, well, I hate King James. I mean, that's probably why I should have watched it, but I was riveted by Chicago. I, I, I'm a closet Blackhawks fan. You know, I mean, when the Bruins aren't in it, I'm rooting for Chicago. You know, Cousin Patrick's out there. Got, got to root for him. That's true. You got to support the a fellow Kane. But nonetheless, to me, Stanley Cup Finals last year, it, it was good, but it wasn't overly compelling. Watching the NBA Finals, you knew who was going to win, that Cleveland didn't have enough in the arsenal to be able to come back and actually defeat Golden State. But the games were just so fun to watch and so much more entertaining, in my opinion. And in general, when you, when you look at it from a broader scope, I just think the NBA playoffs, as you get to the later rounds, becomes a better product than what the NHL is putting out there. Now it's time to step off the hardwood and into the locker room. When we come back, we're going to be discussing the New England Patriots. We've got some key players discussing their contracts. Maybe they're not so happy. Then again, maybe there's nothing to see in Foxborough. But first, we got to pause for the first intermission. Time to step onto the gridiron, where, according to Jeff Howe of the Boston Herald, Malcolm Butler is expected to be at Gillette Stadium this week for OTAs. Howe also said that he's been given a very strong indication that Butler's absence had nothing to do with his contract situation. However, I ask you if you're buying or selling what Jeff Howe is reporting. A little bit of both here, Bobby, because I do believe that last week he did have a reason not to be at the OTAs, and maybe it's not um, entirely contract-related, but I do believe that it is somewhat contract-related. And let's not forget, last year at this time, he missed a plane on his way back and was held out of uh, the first two sessions of OTAs. So maybe this year he says, well, 
I had such a great year last year. I stayed healthy. I'm going to stay out of OTAs for the first week, and I'll kind of talk about it and let things leak to my friends and to teammates that I would like a redo of my contract before the beginning of the year, and why wouldn't he? Uh, he's far out exceeded what uh, what the Patriots are paying him. Paying him. Um, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think it's a situation where, obviously, we don't know for sure what is going on behind the scenes, but to me, the most logical explanation would be that preliminary discussions about his contract were not going well for him, and so his camp advised him it would be best to stay away from the facilities until we can get these talks progressing in a direction that's more positive for us and for you getting a new deal done that is going to pay you appropriate value. And that doesn't seem like something that is too difficult to accomplish. So as a result, it didn't take too much time. And now you have Butler ready to report to OTAs this week. Yeah, I have, as I said last on last week's podcast, I'm, I'm not too scared of Butler going anywhere. I think they'll work something out between team and, and, uh, and player. I look at it, and obviously there's there's no dummies in the Patriots organization. They know that you know they're going to have to pay Malcolm Butler. They can't just turn around and and let him pay play for six hundred thousand dollars this year. We've seen them redo contracts for guys like Rob Ninkovich. We've seen them do them for Patrick Chung, where they um you know where they where they adjust contracts to to fit these guys where they do it, and they do the same thing. You know, on, on the other way, with like uh, guys like Danny Amendola, where they restructured his deal to save some money, there is flexibility now. Now, is Malcolm Butler going to get $10, 15000000 million a year like a top cornerback? I don't think he should. He's done it really – I mean, he's done it for one year, uh, which was last year. But I do believe, you know, he should be getting, you know, starter money at least, which is, you know, 5 to $8 million for a starter. Uh, so I think that's what they'll end up doing is turning around and giving him – that kind of starter money, maybe a little signing bonus, uh, you know, up front so that he gets some money in his pocket this year, but keeps his cap number, uh, you know, basically an extension. So his cap number for this year stays at like the $600,000 and they give him a signing bonus. And, you know, then it, they put a two or three year deal together for him. He's still relatively young. You give him a three year deal, uh, you know, he's hitting free agency at 28, 29 years old. Still in the prime of his career if he continues to uh, get well and, and, and be better. So I'm not too scared of, of that. I think that's what's going to happen. Jeff, and as excited as Malcolm Butler would be to go from being severely underpaid to maybe not being paid appropriately, but still getting good value and finally coming into substantial money, I think the Patriots have to be jumping at the bit at the opportunity to come to terms on a two-year contract as a bridge to Butler's next contract because they also have two other high-priority contract negotiations that have probably already begun with Jamie Collins and Dante Hightower. So to be able to check one of your big-ticket items off, off the list and the fact that you didn't have to break the bank for Butler, who, because of his position, was probably going to command the most money out of the three on the open market, even as a restricted free agent, where we know some teams really try and test you and see, if I come up with a huge offer sheet, will you match it and feel comfortable being stuck with that contract? 
So this allows the Patriots to not have to break the bank for Butler, which makes things that much easier in their efforts to re-sign Jamie Collins and Dante Hightower. And I'm also going to throw Jabal Sheard on there. I think he is a linchpin um, to this defense. He is going to definitely step up into the Chandler Jones shoes. Um, You know, eight sacks last year, just a very good edge rusher. They're going to need him, and I would love to see him resign. Look at a guy like Marty Bennett. Is he one and done here? And then you get into the contracts of Julian Edelman and Danny Amendola after this season. Both will be in the final year of their contracts. So got to start talking about these guys and all the moves that are going to need to be made uh, in the next year plus for the New England Patriots. And, Jeff, let's not forget as we dive into specifics about those contract situations, we talked about this in providing a outlook of the Patriots offseason shortly after their loss to Denver in the AFC Championship that, as, in fact, Miguel Benzin, GFOP, good friend of the program, pointed out on Twitter today that being able to restructure and renegotiate the contracts of Jabal Sheard and Dante Hightower should create more immediate cap flexibility for the Patriots, which, like you said, there's a number of players that they're looking to turn around and do business with, so it makes their efforts that much easier with those players who you mentioned as well. Exactly. Miguel, we'll figure it all out. We'll have to look at his page, fastcap.com. Check it out because the guy is a genius when it comes to the salary cap. As we begin to take the turn for home here on the Kravitsky and Kane podcast, it's time to step off of the football field and on to the diamond. Jeff, in Eduardo Rodriguez's season debut, he went six innings, gave up six hits, two runs, and fanned three. What are your first impressions of Erod's performance? He made it through the night. That's the big thing there. He made it through the night, and six innings, good. Quality start. He got a quality start out of there. They need this guy if they're going to go deep into the playoffs. We talked about this last week on the podcast. We were at different um, you know, views of the spectrum where I would give up prospects for a number two starter. You wanted to stay put. And if Eduardo Rodriguez can turn around and become 90% of what he was last year, you have a very solid number two starter to go along with Stephen Wright, who is just – it reminds me of a young uh, Tim Wakefield right now, um, and not just because he throws the knuckler. He, he's throwing the knuckler as well right now as Wakefield did in 94 when he started 14-1. and one. Um, So I'm looking at this, and Erod, this is, this is exciting. This is good what they're coming along with here, that he was able to go six innings tonight. The velocity, you know, wasn't as high as it's been, but it's, it's creeping up there. It's getting into the low 90s, so we should be good. Yeah, this, I would say, was on par with what most people expected out of Rodriguez tonight. Now the million-dollar question becomes, as you alluded to, they have from today until the trade deadline to try and project 
do we think Rodriguez is a number two starter or a number three starter? Because that drastically changes the conversation about what prospects the Red Sox are willing to give up. Well, exactly, Bobby. You look at it and you say to yourself, is he that number two? And I think he can be that number two. He definitely showed that promise. And now, you, as I said, you have Wright pitching well, and you have Rick Par- Parcello pitching very well. So maybe you don't need to go out and mortgage the future for a, a number two. Granted, we still have you know almost a full eight weeks. We just passed Memorial Day. Almost a full eight weeks until um, the Red Sox need to decide. And who knows where they could be right now. If the bats go cold, um, which I don't see happening, they could be in a world of hurt. But right now, if you're thinking number one priority for the Red Sox, um, if Erod continues his upward swing, if tonight is what he does each and every time out, uh, you're in good hands. And then you're looking at, you know, a, a bullpen arm um, to really help help set things up. Uh, they thought they had that in Smith. Unfortunately, Smith is out now uh, with Tommy John surgery. Um, so they're going to need, you know, a, a an eighth inning specialist, an end of the game specialist, and it's not Clay Buckles, that's for sure. Well, Rodriguez is certainly going to pitch much better as the season progresses than what he showed you tonight in just his first game back, making his season debut. You talked about Clay Buckholz gets bumped out of the rotation so that Rodriguez can make his return to the rotation. My question to you, Clay Buckles looked pretty good in a pressure situation, no less, coming out of the bullpen at the end of the game against Toronto. Do you think it's possible he finds a permanent home in the bullpen? No, because he doesn't want to be there. That's the big thing. He doesn't want to be there. I, I think... I saw somewhere, read somewhere, um, that he came out, you know, into the into the locker room with beat reporters around there, and pretty much said, "I've been demoted to the bullpen." Effing right about that. This is a guy that is not exactly happy. He wasn't happy with John Farrell at the beginning of the year. The worst thing that ever happened to Clay Buckholz was throwing the no hitter in September of 2007. That was the worst thing that ever happened because. There's been unreal expectations over this guy the entire time. Theo Epstein held on to him too long, um, and then the the following regime held on to him for too long. I expect Dabrowski to get something for him. Unfortunately, you know, at this time last year, they could have gotten something for him. They were they weren't going anywhere last year. They could have turned around. He had two years left at thirteen million dollars a year. Was pitching fairly well. They could have turned around and got something for him. But did they do it? No. Ben Charrington held on to him. Another mistake by Ben Charrington as far as trades or acquisitions go. He did a very poor job. He should have traded Clay Buckholz when he had the chance. Theo Epstein should have traded Clay Buckholz when he had the chance. Back in uh, you know 2009, uh, 2010, when they were, were talking about... Uh, Gonzalez coming here from San Diego. No, ultimately he did end up here and, you know, he did well, but was, was turned around and traded away. He wasn't really the greatest fit for, for Boston, but that was a move that should have been made back then. Clay Buckholz is a head case. He's fragile and he's never going to be the pitcher that everyone thought he was going to be after that first time he came out against the Baltimore Orioles and threw a no hitter. Jeff, 
I don't equate Clay Buckholz's situation with that of the Celtics holding on to Rajon Rondo for too long. Sure, they could have moved him last season and gotten not great but decent value in return, whereas now he would get them a bag of donuts on the trade market. But still, I really don't blame Red Sox management for holding on to Buckles too long. And I understand where you're coming from with the no-hitter, and that's to a degree it's valid. But at the same time, this is a guy who just a few seasons ago started off 10-0 and until he had the back injury. His problems are mental, and that usually manifests itself with physical ailments where he has to spend time on the DL. I'm glad that they didn't make an excuse for him this time around. And as far as what his future will be, you're right, that he's going to want to be a starter, and he's going to want to get paid like a starter does, not like a middle reliever or a setup guy. So long-term, he is most likely going to be a starting pitcher on another team. But in the short term, the Red Sox need all the bullpen help they can get. They're throwing Robbie Ross out every other day. So it's a, a both sides need each other right now as Buckholz looks to find himself and as the Red Sox look to patch up their bullpen. It'll be something we got to watch the entire year. And yeah, I would not be too surprised if you saw the Red Sox trade Clay Buckholz for a bullpen arm. I think that maybe where they're going, you know, trade them out, out to an NL team, get yourself a bullpen arm back and, you know, a double a prospect. And I think you have yourself, um, the makings of a deal. And I think you'll see Dabrowski do that. He's not afraid to trade. He's not afraid to move, uh, for, for prospects, for good players. And I'm going to look at it and I, I will not be too surprised if Clay Buckholz find his way out of here. Now that could all, turn completely around if in his next start Erod screws up his knee again or Joe Kelly, you know, blows out a, an elbow, that could all turn around and you need Clay Buckholz in your starting rotation and he does have the ability to go on those type of runs. I just say get rid of Clay. I wouldn't be surprised at all if push comes to shove and they end up designating Buckholz for assignment. Again, I'm just not sure what type of quality He's still too much value I, I really don't think he does especially at this juncture maybe if he pitches well enough out of the bullpen maybe if there's a situation that calls for him to get another start and he holds his own maybe there's a, a national league team that says with no dh and a fresh start that he can come in here and help out the back end of our rotation but i still don't think that it's a gamble that would get the red sox that good of a relief pitcher you're probably talking about someone on par with Matt Barnes who's pitched very well but nonetheless you get what I'm saying you're not getting someone who came to the Red Sox with the same amount of hype and expectations as a Carson Smith for example well yeah but you know what turn around and trade him out uh, to old friend Theo Epstein you know he's got to have some some use for a starting pitcher turn him out there Epstein, this is your boy. Here you go. Um, and go from there. You know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I certainly hope that Theo would take the bait on that one. Jeff, 
It is time to deliver our final thoughts as we channel our inner Tom Brady and head into the two-minute drill. And now with no timeouts, I think that the I think that the Patriots with this field position, you have to just run the clock out. You have to play for overtime now. I don't think you want to force anything here. You don't want to do anything stupid because you have no timeouts and you're backed up. All right, Jeff, why don't you take us home? What is on your mind? What do you want to share with the people? Again, we do not reveal these to each other, so this is the first time I'm hearing what's been, what's been gnawing at you the past few days. I'm curious to hear what you got to say, big fella. Well, you know, stuff had been gnawing at me for a while about Deflategate, and I know it's the most tired and overblown subject in the entire world but there was some news that came out on Tuesday, more uh, amicus briefs, I can't even say it, friend of the court letters. Um, amicus. And amicus, thank you, amicus. Amicus, amicus, I can't even say it. It's like Levy and Bell, you know what I'm talking about? I got you. Uh, you. You pick it up what I'm putting down, kid. But listen, drop it already, Goodell, honestly. You have one of the best trial lawyers as, as far as, you know, Supreme Court goes. Uh, and Ted Olson fighting against you. Now you have scientists that are showing things against you, which from the beginning we all knew, anyone who's lived in New England and has gone out in the morning and had that low tire pressure gauge come on knows when it's cold out, you lose pressure in anything. My kids know this. And now here we are tied up two to two. I, I give it two to two because you had uh, the second uh, circuit court uh, go two to one, Judge Berman, of course. Uh, ruled in favor of Tom Brady. And now here you have the Patriots coming out and supporting Tom Brady. You have um, the the, uh, AFL union uh, coming out and supporting Tom Brady. You have 21 separate uh, scientists from places like MIT, um, Boston College, University of Illinois, Cal Berkeley coming out and putting these front of the court letters out. Um, And then there was an arbitrator, and I can't get his name in front of me right now, but he came out and, and also poked holes all over this stuff. Um, it's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Judge, jury, and executioner Roger Goodell has finally stepped in his own poo because some of the stuff that came out basically just came and showed that what he did wasn't fair and wasn't just. And if the 13 gosh darn judges down in the second – uh, Court of Appeals, the U.S. Second Court of Appeals in New York can't get their heads out of their collective asses and realize that it is time to treat this the way it's been so should have been treated. Not this Article 46 BS, but actually the way that this should have been treated from day one. It was a guy with who, who has way too much power and had to find a way to to turn around and justify five million plus freaking dollars that he freaking turned around and spent on air pressure on gosh darn air pressure roger goodell you're a complete and utter boob it's time that you lose and you know what you sit there and you talk about you have safety and all the stuff for the thing go ahead and look at the cte freaking study you damn jerk you're gonna get it and you're gonna get it good and i hope you lose your goddamn job roger goodell screw you Woo! in fuego jeff the dragon Kane and hot fire i love the take i will say maybe i'm being naive jeff i feel like the more and more 
amicus briefs that get filed by prestigious companies, corporations, and individuals, the better the chance it feels to me from the outside that Brady has of getting this thing reheard by the 13 judges. He's winning this thing, Bobby. It's going to go to bed. I mean, that's certainly the most likely outcome, but you can't help but feel like it might have some impact, all these amicus briefs from people of high profile coming in. It's clear that Ted Olson is calling on some of his more influential friends to chip in here and do him a solid. And maybe that doesn't carry enough weight to get this thing reheard. But then again, maybe it does. So we'll see how this all plays out. I wouldn't go presuming that Brady is done, but it's certainly the most likely outcome that he is sitting the first four games of this season. Jeff, Oklahoma City is going to be sitting the entire offseason, which they began earlier than anticipated when they were up 3-1 to one on Golden State in the Western Conference Finals. And it's fascinating to me to watch people try so hard to get to the bottom of how to divvy up responsibility for how the Thunder ultimately lost this series to the Warriors, as if that has any bearing on anything whatsoever. The bottom line is they lost. And while some people look to divvy it up as it was a complete joke job, and some people look to divvy it up as you've got to give all or almost all the credit to the Warriors, I think it's just another situation where the answer lies in the middle and you have to look at the context if you're going to talk specifically about one instance, that of course being the Western Conference Finals. Look, Oklahoma City was up three to one. So when you can't win one out of your next three games at that point, when you are the hottest team in basketball at that juncture, you choked. You did. But at the same time, when you go back and look at games five, six, and seven, those individual games had more to do with Golden State winning them and taking it from the Thunder than it did Oklahoma City choking. Now, specific moments you can point to of the Thunder collapsing is the fact that, forget that they that Clay Thompson had a historic night in Game 6, and so that kept the Warriors in the game. That's fine, and you can't blame the Thunder for Clay Thompson being unconscious from beyond the arc. But what you can blame them for is the fact that when Thompson passed the baton to Steph Curry, who was ready to take over at the end of the game, the Thunder wilted. They completely melted down as the pressure was turned up. And it happened again in Game 7 at the end of the third quarter where you heard Reggie Miller talk about it. And I can say that confidently because it got an 11.2 ratings compared to the Stanley Cup that didn't even reach the 3.0 mark. Low blow! That's right, Jeff. I take all shots I can. My point being, in Game 7, you you want to point to a choke job. Golden State starts hitting them with with that barrage of threes. It only puts them up by five points, and you can see the Thunder start bickering with each other. Their body language resembles that of how they made the Warriors react When things weren't going their way in the beginning of this series, they completely melted down when it was only a two-possession game. They were able to regroup 
But you have to wonder what would have happened if they could have kept their composure. But just like in the end of Game 6, at the end of the third quarter in Game 7, they failed to do so. So you can't just say they didn't choke whatsoever when there are clear instances of that happening. And the other story, the overarching theme of this partnership between Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant is their lack of discipline. I thought Kenny Smith, Kenny Smith put it best on the post game on Inside the NBA last night, which, by the way, another dagger, Jeff, it also drew better ratings than game one of the Stanley Cup finals. That's right, I went there. Kenny Smith. No one wants to watch Pittsburgh versus Big Bony Joe, anyways. That's right, although I am rooting for Jumbo Joe over Sidney Crosby oh, I all day. Uh, I, I, I hope an atomic bomb lands on both of them. No complaints if the building collapses. But to get back <laughs> to my point, Jeff, the overarching theme of this partnership between Westbrook and Durant, as Kenny Smith said on the postgame show, is that Golden State was able to hang around to see if the Leopard was going to show its spots. And sure enough, it did. Those two guys, when they do not respond well to pressure, because every single time, even when they're able to see the positive effects of creating easy opportunities for their role players, which they're talented enough and draw enough of the defensive attention to do every single time down the floor, even when they see how well it's working, building double-digit leads in both Game 6 and Game 7, they still respond to pressure by trying to do it all themselves, and it never works. There's a large sample size of that method producing bubkiss, but they can't help themselves. It's what they revert to every single time. And it has me it's wondering, it has me wondering, Jeff, the most likely scenario for Kevin Durant this offseason is, of course, that he re-signs in Oklahoma City on a one-year deal with a player option. He gives this thing one more chance, and there's all the reason to believe that this could be what they need to get over the hump. And with Billy Donovan having another offseason and more material to show these guys on film that they're able to figure it out and come together to win a championship. But it's fair to speculate on whether or not Durant looks at this partnership with Westbrook, looks at how they lost this series, and says, it's time to move on. And it could be. And you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue against you because I don't think you can really sit there and say that Oklahoma City truly choked. I mean, this isn't the 2004 New York Yankees up three games to none against the Boston Red Sox. This is, you're going up against a team that you beat three times, once on their home court. You beat them three times. All season long, they lost two games on their home court and nine games total. And you took them seven games. And not only did you take them seven games, you had a double-digit lead. You're just lost to the better team. And Curry and, and, and Clay Tompkins, and they're just better team all around. I personally, now looking at this, I think Kevin Durant may just sit there and say, I just took the Oklahoma City, uh, excuse me, the uh, Golden State Warriors, the best team in the land, to seven games. I don't know if I can beat them as currently uh, put. I might have to get out of the West and go to the East where all I have to do is beat LeBron James to make it to the finals, and then that's where I could take the San Antonio Spurs or the Golden State Warriors 
two with game seven and anything could happen. That's just my two cents on it. See, Jeff, here's the thing. As I shove those two cents right back in your grill, first off, I'm not interested in trying to apply an arbitrary percentage to how much of it was. Are you Roger Goodell now? Yeah, exactly. I'm not interested in a due process. I mean, sorry, misspoke there. I'm not interested in applying an arbitrary percentage of how much of it is Oklahoma City choking, how much of it is give credit to the Warriors because they earned it, and how much of it is the Thunder's lack of discipline in the most critical situations of these games. I'm just telling you, those are the three factors that played out in ultimately spelled doom for Oklahoma City. Divvy them up however you want. I think you've got to give the majority of it to Golden State for taking each of those three games and for being able to have the mental fortitude to do so. But to disregard Oklahoma City choking when there's clear instances of it happening, I think is also foolish. And you talk about Kevin Durant saying to himself, perhaps that he's not convinced this Thunder team can beat Golden State as constructed. I think that's completely foolish with all due respect, because for one thing, they had him three to one and they were able in Golden State to have a double digit lead on the Warriors. They were, they came within a hair of doing just that and knocking off Golden State. And when you really break it down, the Thunder arguably have the most talented roster in the league. And what's even more compelling for him to stay is it wasn't a case like LeBron James in Cleveland in his first stint there where the others weren't good enough. It was Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook that were not good enough. And sure, you can say that In Game 7, it was more Westbrook than Durant. But in Game 6, it was more Durant than Westbrook. So it's those two. It's the stars that have to look themselves in the mirror and try and get this thing right and figure it out if they're going to stay together, which I think they will. But I also think it's fair to speculate about what's going through Kevin Durant's mind and how he feels about the possibility of calling this experiment over. Let's just hope the NBA Finals play out the same way the Western Conference Finals did. Amen to that. I'm curious to hear what you, the listeners, thought about the various topics that we discussed and debated on tonight's episode of Kravitsky and Kane. So hit us up on Twitter, at Bobby underscore K91, at Jeff Kane 78 Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week.